Okay, we are following the birth of the early church, of which we are all here today who are followers of Christ, descendants of this amazing event. And one of the goals I have as we go through this is that, you know, you could kind of have a picture in your mind, at least a general idea of how this all works out. And so, from time to time, I just kind of do a quick flyover again of what happened. We have Jesus ascends, 120 people are waiting, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit descends, and there's a revival in Jerusalem. It's amongst Jewish people. We estimate from what the Scriptures tell us that somewhere the church grew to somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people. In just a very short period of time. So here we have this flourishing, exciting, dynamic church that's going on, and, and all of a sudden, persecution breaks out, and the whole church, in fact, the text tells us in, uh, earlier on that the only ones left in town were the apostles. Thousands of people. The whole church is scattered three, four hundred miles all through Asia Minor, all over. And the next thing that happens is Paul is, Saul is pursuing the persecution when God strikes him down on the road and does something unbelievable. Takes the primary persecutor of the church and is now going to use him to be his primary builder of the church. Amazing story. The next thing we find is that God has to convince the Jews that the gospel is also for the Gentiles. And he does that during this time. Paul is off in Tarsus. He's been, his life's been threatened because of the changes that have taken place. He's off in Tarsus for a number of years. And we find that some of those that went out now in chapter 13 are up in Antioch. And there's, a, there's an amazing thing God is doing there. People are, are getting saved up there. There's a revival going on in this place called Antioch. I'm going to have Chris put the map up so you can just get kind of an idea here of what this looks like. And you notice there's some numbers up there. And you've got Antioch, which is right above Jerusalem. Actually, there's two Antiochs. And we're going to hear about the second one today. But there's one straight above Jerusalem there. And that's where this revival is going on. In fact, it's so predominant that what happens is Barnabas comes from Jerusalem to Antioch. He goes over to Tarsus where Paul is and gets Paul. Uh, by the way, Saul and Paul are the same person. We'll interchange that. Pretty soon we'll find that he's no longer called Saul, but he's called Paul. Brings him over to Antioch, and there they, are, they have been working for a year to build and to disciple these new believers that have come to that place. There's a good summary let me just share it with you. And we find <clears throat> these words. This is from chapter 11 of the book of Acts. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Then it says in verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, 
he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. That means a lot of people. We can probably figure we're talking up in the thousands. Great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So here we are. This brings us to chapter 13 this morning. And I just want to make just a few brief comments about the story here. It's a pretty extensive story, so we don't have time to walk through it in detail. And then I want to share three observations with you this morning. Just some interesting things. Notice the list of leaders there. I'll put their names up. There was Barnabas. These are leaders in the church in Antioch. There's Barnabas, who is a Levite. He's a Jew. That's the first one that's mentioned there. Then there's Simeon called Niger, which means Simeon the Black. And this was a African, uh, a black African man that had been saved. Probably one of those that had come from Cyprus or one of the islands there. And uh, he had also originated in Africa. There's Lucius of Cyrene, which is also African. Then there's Menean, which has strong connections in the court of Herod, who very well could have been a Greek. And then there's Saul, who's a Jew. So the point is this. You've got a, a really a broad spectrum of people here that were you know, starting leaders in this church in Antioch. Well, they go to this... What happens is the, the people in, in Antioch are sending Saul and Barnabas, two key leaders, and they're sending them off. They're sending them off on one of what we see here is the first missionary journey of Paul. And there will be three of them. So this is the first one. And it is a church planning ministry. Very important for the spread of the gospel here. Now, if we go to, uh, after they, we see they go to the island of Cyprus. And uh, <clears throat> getting back to the, is the, is the map up there, Chris? <clears throat> I just wanted to show you one other thing about the map here. If we go back to the map, what's going to happen is they're going to leave Antioch and they're going to go to the island there of Cyprus. And that's where they're going to meet this magician, the sorcerer, and the proconsul. Then they're going to go north to the coast and they're going to go on up to the, the Pisidian Antioch, which is a place where possibly the proconsul who got converted in Cyprus had connections because we know we had family members up there. And so they're going to travel up there, and they're going to move back to the right and uh, a few of the towns, and then they're going to go back to Antioch and retrace their steps back. And you can kind of see the numbers up there. It shows you the order of the towns that they went to. Okay, here they are. They have arrived in Pisidian Antioch. Many people uh, are getting saved there, and there are both... Jews and non-Jews that are getting saved. Verse 13, just an interesting point. It says, From Paphos, which is on the island of Cyprus, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga. And it says, Where John left them to return to Jerusalem. That's all it says. We know, however, later that there was a bit of a, a conflict that took place between Paul and John Mark. This isn't the Apostle John. This is John Mark, the one who we feel wrote the book of Mark. 
And what Paul says at that point, he says, I don't want to take John Mark with me because on my first journey he deserted us, is what he said. So it doesn't tell us a story here, but evidently John Mark took off. We don't know why. Maybe he got homesick. Uh, we know that this is the area where Paul got sick because he said it was through his illness that he preached to the Galatians. Uh, we don't know if John Mark got a little upset because Paul was now becoming the leader over Barnabas, who was John Mark's cousin. We don't know what the situation was, but we know here that John Mark leaves, and it's Barnabas and Saul. They end up in Antioch. They speak in the synagogue. The whole city is, is moved, and they, they speak to them, and then the Jews incite the leading women and men of the community against them, and it says that they shake the dust off of their feet and leave. And what, what people would do is, in those days, shaking the dust off your feet was like saying, I don't want to take one thing into my country from your country. I'm not even going to take the dust on the bottom of my shoes. That's what it meant when you shook your feet, the dust of your feet. And so they left Antioch and continued on their journey. Well, this morning, I, I want to... I want to share just three key concepts here that, that come out of this that I think are applicable for us as we seek to be a missional church. Three very important key things. And we'll just walk through those briefly this morning. Here's the first one. The first one is we see this early church partnering with God. I'll use that phrase. Partnering with God. You know, there were no church growth seminars... Uh, I, I, there was, recently there was a book recommended. It's called Ten Mistakes That Church Planners Make. That one hadn't been written yet. There were no church planning assessment centers, you know, where people could go and find out if they were qualified to be a church planner. They didn't have any of that. And so they did the only thing they could do, and that was they had to just stop and pray. Say, God, what, what do we do and who do we send? And so they're praying in this early church and the Holy Spirit reveals to them that Barnabas and Saul are the guys and that they are to send them off on this church-planting missionary journey. And so we see here in the text it says that they're fasting and praying when God sends them on their mission. Jane Holloway in her book Prayer for Amateurs tells them an interesting uh, thing that was done by a church. They did an experiment. Here's what they did. They took 160 homes and they split them in half, 80 in each group, around two different areas, two different blocks. And for 80 of the people, they prayed for several weeks. They prayed for the 80 people in those homes. Okay? They did not pray for the other 80. Then after a couple of months, they had the church... Uh, administrator called all 160 homes and she asked them two questions. She said, is there something that we as a church could pray about for your family? And the second thing she said was, would you like a visit from someone from the church? Okay? In the group of people that were not prayed for, in uh, 80 homes asking those two questions, one home, one person, one prayer request. 
one person responded and said, yeah, you could pray for me about this. And that was the extent of any positive response. In the 80 homes that were prayed for, 67 people responded with prayer requests. 47 people said they would like a visit from someone from the church. And she makes the point, you know, in the book that on the, the power of prayer. Uh, we see the advance of the church in Singapore is all based on the power of people praying. We see the massive growth in, in South Korea is based on a church that gathers together daily. Every morning before work, people gather all over to pray. Friday nights, many people come out and pray the whole evening. And in, in the commentary uh, in the book, he writes this, In the West we find prayer the hardest of things to get down to. We'd rather do almost any amount of active work than to spend two hours with God in prayer. And he writes, But until that tendency is reversed, I doubt if we will see much happening in the founding of church and churches. The point is this, is that prayer is a powerful, powerful thing. We have a, we have a lead team of Pastors are gathered together and we have a mission statement. I'd like you to see that mission statement. And we spend a lot of time when we work together, just about every word in here is very important. Our mission is to partner with God to start new churches together that make new disciples for Christ in culturally relevant ways in central Wisconsin. That's what we're doing in Maryland. And we waited two and a half years. We prayed for two and a half years. We met up in Merrill and prayed as a lead team asking God to bring someone there. And one of the key things in that mission statement is we want to partner with God. We don't want to be off just trying to do stuff that God is not doing. And so we see here the early church is, is waiting because they want to be directed by God. They want to partner by God. That's the first thing I see here. We see this over and over again. The church gathering, when it's getting ready to move, they get together and they pray. But you know what? When they pray, they don't just sit there and pray because God responds and then they move and then they act. You know, that's the whole point of James where he says, if you lack wisdom, if anyone lacks wisdom, you ask God and He will give you the wisdom. But you know what? When you pray that prayer and God responds then don't be double-minded. Or it says don't doubt. What that word means is double-minded. It means if you pray and God tells you how to act and then you don't act, He says don't, that man will receive nothing from the Lord. And so, what we see here in the early churches, we see here a devotion to pray, but it's not just about sitting and praying, it's about when God speaks and you move, and then you act, and then you go on the mission, and you do what God is calling you to do. And that's exactly what we see happening here. The second thing is, we see that they are devoted to the mission. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to leave Antioch. That had to be an exciting place. Hundreds of people coming to Christ, a new church. I'm sure there were friendships that were being developed. And now, Paul and Barnabas are getting sent out. That's the second thing we see. We see they prayed and then they moved into action through the power of God's Spirit. When prayer doesn't result in obedient follow-through, then God tells us He quits listening. 
It's like, you know what? You know, I, I've already told you. Go back. You know, you asked me, I told you, do what I told you. If you're not going to do what I tell you, then why should I answer you? And so we see here that they, they followed through here on what God called them to do. Michael Green, who wrote 30 Years That Changed the World, one of the books that I have just kind of browsed, browsed through as I've been doing the study, and that he writes this. He says, there's no greater challenge to the contemporary church than this. Do we really believe Jesus is God himself who came to share our nature, rescue us from alienation from God, and accompany us, not only alongside us, but in our lives? If so, there can be only one proper attitude for the disciple of such a master, and that's wholehearted obedience. I see it in Asia and Africa. I see it in the Chinese who are prepared to tramp through trackless wastes of Mongolia to bring the gospel to unreached areas. I see it in the fearless enthusiasm of Latin Americans who will stand shouting, Gloria Dios, in a bus until all the passengers join in. I see it in the dedication of men like an African friend in Zaire who's prepared to go alone without resources deep into the jungles to bring the gospel to pygmy people. I see it in the skyscrapers and sophisticated business milieu of Singapore where you are sure to get accosted by someone who is anxious to tell you about Jesus. But I don't see a great deal of it in the West. Wholeheartedness, devoted, obedience to Christ, the head of the church, may take many forms, but it is essential. He cannot work through disobedient disciples. If we wish to see any resurgence in our day of the vitality which marked the early church, we must look to our wholeheartedness. You know, that's the second point of our vision. Is that God is calling, I believe, each of us to say, what does it mean for me to be wholehearted in this vision to reach this community? What is my place? What does that look like? And uh, we're going to be praying. And we're going to be working to provide opportunities for people to be able to answer that question. We also see here just a, you know, we see positive and negative response. Wherever they go, there's opposition and there's results. And it's a very powerful picture. Let me just move quickly to the last point. The last point is this, and that is the third thing we see here is the centrality of the gospel. The centrality of the gospel. You know, there are things that people can, many things we can give people that they need in this life, and we should. There's only one thing that you can't live without. Only one thing you can't live without. You can live without a home. You can live without a job. You can live without income. You can live without food. You can live without water. Actually, you can live without air. But you can't live without Christ. Amen. You can't live without Christ. Jesus said, you know, Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Uh, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. Even in death, you know, when you cannot breathe anymore, Jesus says, I still can offer you life. When Jesus fed the 5,000, they, they came. And, and they came the next day and they, they came back. And, and Jesus has some interesting words in John 6, verse 26. You see it up on the wall there. Jesus saw the crowds. And this is what he said to him. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate loaves and had your fill. 
Here's what Jesus is saying. Is, you know what? You guys are back. Not because you saw these miraculous signs and you're saying, who is this man? No, you're back because you had food and you want more food. That, that's all you're seeing. And Jesus said, I have, I have some interesting news for you. I am the food. I am the bread. John 6, 33. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so, Jesus fed the hungry, but He was quick to remind them that, you know, it's not just about bread. It's about me. It's about Christ. And so, as we seek to, to go out on mission, God will call us to, to hold up Christ. And that's exactly what we see here in the text. Uh, you know, verses 38 and 39. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. This is the central focus of the early church. It needs to be our central focus. And I'll tell you something. If you start proclaiming that in this culture, you will run into opposition. There are not a few people that believe that every culture has its own story. And for you to go and say, this is the true story, your story's wrong, this is the true story, there are many people that feel you do violence to that culture, that you do violence to those people. And yet, we believe that this is not my story, it's not your story, it's no one's story, this is God's story. And of course, we believe that because we believe in the revelation of God through His Word. If we don't believe in the revelation of God through His Word, then perhaps it is valid that everyone should have their own story. This is Christ's revealed story to us. And any story that does not make Christ central is the wrong story. And uh, you will, you'll be challenged on that. There are those who believe there is no universal truth. Actually, they do believe in a universal truth. The universal truth is that there is no universal truth. But we believe that this is a revealed Word of God, that God has revealed to us the story, and that He's called us to share His story with the world. So here it is. Be prayerful, to be devoted to mission, and to be Christ-centered. What a, what a great message following uh, your vote last Sunday. Because I just think this sums it up. And I believe if we will be prayerful, and if we will be devoted to the mission, and we will hold up Christ, we will see a fresh work of God, and we will see some very exciting things happen in the lives of people and, and in this community. And uh, I just invite you to begin, begin praying about that and to make yourself available in the coming days to how you can be a partner in this great mission that God has called us to. Father, I thank you for this story this morning. It's, uh, I just can't help but believe that it's your word to us this time and this place. And so, Father, we... We just thank You for the working of Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for the call that You've given us. And uh, Father, we just ask for Your direction in our lives. Father, I pray for anyone here today 
was heard these words, that through Jesus there is complete forgiveness. I would pray for anyone who has not opened their heart up and invited you to come in through your Holy Spirit. I pray that this morning and even right now, that they would just invite you to come and that you would do that amazing, miraculous work of rebirth in their heart and in their life. Father, as we move into this time of communion now, may you just use the times of quiet and uh, this time of worship to lift up your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.